You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. This is not my first time in Copenhagen, but nevertheless, when I arrived, I was still taken aback by just what a cycle-centric city this is. The bike really is king. They're absolutely everywhere, thousands of them. And it's bikes of all different types. Some with baskets, some with trailers, straight handlebars, dropped handlebars, fixed wheels. And the riders are young, old, and everyone in between. It really is the most egalitarian mode of transport. And because there's so many of them, the cyclists command the respect of other road users in a way that perhaps they don't in other cities. Bikes buzz along the streets, they're stacked at bike racks everywhere, and outside the central station, they're five, six or seven deep. This weekend though, high-spec, top-end carbon fibre time trial bikes will take over as the Tour de France kicks off with a long-awaited opening time trial in the Danish capital. It was supposed to be held here a couple of years ago, but COVID put paid to that. And then there was a further delay because of a clash with the Euro 2020 football tournament, which has also been delayed by COVID. Now though, the city is ready and the timing couldn't be more appropriate as Danish cycling surfs a wave of success. There are 10 Danes on the start list for this year's tour. Among them, a three-time under 23 world time trial champion, a winner of the Tour of Flanders, arguably the best lead-out man in the world, a former world champion, the winner of Liège, Baston Liège and Il Lombardia, and last year's tour runner-up, Jonas Vingegaard. There's also someone who climbed Kilimanjaro, albeit not on a bike. That's Magnus Court, by the way. This episode is called Danish Dynamite. I've unashamedly borrowed the title of a very fine book about the Danish football team that stormed the world in the 1980s, and I hope the authors Lars Eriksson, Mike Gibbons and Rob Smith don't mind. Actually, this is a two-parter, charting the rise, fall and rebirth of Danish cycling. The second part will be released after the Tour Circus has packed up and returned to France after the weekend. Denmark were relatively late arrivals on the Tour de France stage. In 1958, four Danish riders formed part of an international team, along with Shay Elliott of Ireland and Stan Britton of of, well, Britain. Of the four, Hans Andersen was the only rider to finish in 62nd position. There are a handful of riders in the 1960s and early 70s who left a bit of a footprint on the Tour de France. Ole Ritter rode the Giro d'Italia more times because he rode for an Italian team and his best finish there was 7th and he also won three stages. He only actually rode the Tour de France once towards the end of his career in 1975, but he did hold the world hour record from 1968 to 72 when Eddie Merckx broke it. Leif Mortensen was sixth in the Tour in 1971, and the first Danish stage winner was Moens Fry the year before that. He won in Mulhouse, but he had his teammates' indiscretion to thank for the victory. Joachim Agostino was actually first over the line, but he'd put his hands on Frey's handlebars to pull him back, and so was disqualified. In the 1980s came another wave of Danish riders. Kim Anderson held the yellow jersey and won stages in 1983. Jesper Skibu, perhaps more famous for having his bike run over on the Koppenberg during the Tour of Flanders. Jorgen Pedersen won a stage in 85 and wore the yellow jersey in 86. And there were other riders who were ever-present in breakaways, such as Soren Lilholt and Johnny Welts. 
And then came the 90s. Brian Holm, Bo Hamburger, Rolf Sorensen, who had to pull out of the 1991 tour while wearing the yellow jersey, and Bjarne Reese, of course. Reese's win in the 1996 Tour de France was a huge moment for Danish sport, but it was also perhaps the moment when cycling began to wonder whether enough was enough when it came to EPO use. Like most things in cycling, there's light and shade when it comes to telling the story of Danish cycling. Reese had been a domestique, a good one admittedly, but something of a journeyman until he joined Giancarlo Ferretti's Ariostea team in 1993. He finished fifth in the tour that year, third two years later, and then switched to the telecom team for 1996. So the story goes, at a meeting at an early season training camp, Reese told his teammates if they backed him 100%, he would win the tour for them. There was apparently laughter and raised eyebrows, but win the tour he did. At the Giro d'Italia in Turin, I had lunch with Brian Nygaard, who worked closely with Bjarne Reese at the CSC team. I started by asking him where he was during the summer of 1996. I was studying at the time, but obviously on summer holidays. And I was basically either sitting in my kitchen with friends or had sort of small backyard. We'd bought like a long cable so we could have a TV in the backyard. So basically watching every single stage. It wasn't full stages at the time, but we were watching bike racing. Had some friends who were really into it as well. So was cycling part of the Danish summer? It was, and basically because there, sometimes in Denmark there isn't really any summer because it's raining a lot. So it just became a, a, an integrated part of people's summer. They would always, wherever you were, at least if you're in Denmark, the TV would be on. And you would sort of listen to it within half a year, and then when, when Jorgen, you could tell by the voice of Jorgen Led or his then commentating partner, Jörn Mader, that when something was about to happen, you would, you would walk or congregate in front of the TV. And it's a little bit the same still, you know, people generally aren't interested in cycling, they'll, they'll watch the tour anyways, especially if there's a Danish rider doing really well. So when did Danish cycling fever really catch on? Was it when he got the yellow jersey or was, it, was the momentum already building? Yeah, the momentum was already building, and then '96 it, it really exploded, you know. And then the year after, uh, Ross Sorensen won the Tour of Flanders. It, it took momentum, and you know, it wasn't, I mean, soccer is huge in Denmark, but it, it, the tour really came in a solid second place after that. For any day, in the you know, Bjarne Ries winning the tour was massive. You know, we, it was just years after we won the European finals in football, which was very, very surprising. You know, we weren't even supposed to be there, but. Got, a, got an entry because Yugoslavia couldn't, obviously couldn't play. So it was just a really a very important formative period for, for Danish sports in general. And it, it took a lot to be on the radar. You know, but when Bjarne won the tour, he, he, it was just instantly national hero. He has gone again. This is the third time that Reese has gone. We think he's shaken out the second and third rider overall in this race with his two previous attacks. I mean, my moment of the race is the, the stage to Hotakam, where he pulled out of the line and had a look at all of his rivals and then put it in the big gear and, and accelerated off. Now, I watched that with innocent eyes at the time, as, as we all did, I guess. But, you know, what was that moment like? sitting in your backyard, watching it, realizing that a, a Danish rider was going to win the tour. 
surprise was, I mean, I know he was in the yellow jersey and he'd already had a pretty good grip on the, on the race at that point and riding with an extremely strong team with Ulrich as a, as a lieutenant for him. I definitely also watched it with innocent eyes, but you all, even at the, not knowing anything about what went on at the time, I was almost incredulous. Like, how can he just drop the best climbers in the world and ride away on a big chain ring? But he, he was poised, you know, he was so ready. And when that stage to Sestria got cancelled, he probably would have done something similar. I mean, he did end up winning and taking the jersey, etc. But he, he could have done a lot of damage on that stage already, I think, you know, this, in the Alps, but ended up doing it in the Pyrenees instead. So I think the Grimace is slowly turning to a smile here as Bjorn Reese hasn't got the gap he said he would get. But, well, we'll forgive him for that because he's got half of it to death. He's fed it to the did he become a superstar in Denmark as a result of winning the tour? I mean, I don't want to be unkind about uh, how somebody looks, and I can say this as a, as a bald man, and I guess you can as well, but there's not many bald superheroes, is there? No, no I never thought about that. Uh, he was a reluctant superhero, I would say. He was... a. Uh, was quite shy with the media and he wasn't sort of uh, but a lot of people liked him because of that that he wasn't flamboyant that he you know that he came from the humble beginnings and that he had worked his way up people took to that i think the problem was that it it um, very shortly after you know and with this with the festina scandal and and you know with, because of some very very brilliant investigative journalism the the um, it de it uh, imploded you know the the superstar facade if there had ever been one and it you know it, it divided people in, in terms of do you believe in cycling or specifically do you believe in Bjarne Reese or not so he didn't have a lot of years where he could even get used to being whatever kind of superstar the Danes wanted him to be and, and you know until the mirror broke. The overall winner of the Tour de France Bjarne Reese finishing a minute and 41 seconds ahead of his young German teammate Jan Denmark fell madly in love with the tour, didn't it? Danish fans flocked to France the next few Julys. We saw the Danish flag everywhere and suddenly there was a real momentum. Uh, teams from Denmark were coming along. Um, and there was a sense that Denmark was a, you know, a, a leading cycling nation. But as you say, it was relatively short-lived. Already there were the rumours about Bjarne Rees and the doctors he'd worked with and the nickname, uh, Mr. 60%. And then we collided with the Festina scandal. And cycling really went through a very dark period. What was your perspective on all of that? And, and how did you come to end up working in cycling? Looking back at the history of cycling, and I had by then already read everything I can get a hold of and tried to get as much background and information. And, and even, you know, without knowing what went on in those years specifically, you couldn't really be in a position of, of being surprised. You know, you, the difference was they weren't asked at the time, you know, way back, you know, in the, in the, in the years of, you know, from copy and onwards and all those. And like, it wasn't really on the agenda that journalists would ask them about their preparation. <clears throat> I think the big difference was that they started to do that and the riders had to lie. They had to deny and they had to say that, you know, it wasn't, whereas we know now it was a completely integrated part of 
sometimes even of how we saw that with Festina at least, or, and then later on with Liberty Seguros and potentially even T-Mobile, that it was a part of how, in fully integrated in how they worked. It was you know systematic doping, and they couldn't really define it any more clear than that. When the when the, the bubble burst for the general public in '98, it was definitely something that that uh, cycling, for some at least, lost its charm. People really want to see fair competition, and if they if if they sense that 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 wasn't the case, for a lot of people at least, it 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 took some of the charm away. I I have to say that I I got I didn't get any less interested in it because of that, because I was interested in the culture of cycling. I was interested in what went on and I was interested in I you know I also quite early became interested luckily for me at least in the in the culture clash was at least what I saw at the time between journalists and athletes I was quite intrigued by that to see how 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 those temperaments collided you know and, and the irony was that just years later I, I was in I was in between myself After writing some articles for a Danish cycling magazine, Brian met the press officer for Bjarne Ries' CSC team and went on to help out at the Tour de France. On his return to Denmark, having split up with his girlfriend, he was staying in his brother's basement when he received a call out of the blue. The phone rang and uh, the person at the other end said, this is Bjarne Ries. And I, you know, I was 100% sure it was a prank call. And, but the thing with Bjarne, when he calls you, he doesn't really say much, so I couldn't actually tell. But initially, I was convinced it was a prank call because he offered me the job as a press officer. And then I knew it was a prank call, and I thought of one of my friends, you know, you know, taking the mic. But it wasn't, I realized. And he was offering me the job with zero experience. I was 25 years old, and it was, you know, his story or his presence in Danish cycling was massive. And I, I said, are you sure you... Yeah, yeah, I'm, does that sound like something for you? And I was like... Yeah, if I can live in Italy. I said, yeah, you, I don't care where you live, you can live in, in Italy. So. What was Bjarne Ries like to work for? I had seen uh, how my you know, former boss, who was the press officer before me, had dealt with him, and I could tell that you had, you had to really insist on what you thought was the right perspective and how the interaction with the media should be conducted. So I was aware that it wasn't smooth sailing, and I was aware that I had to pull up my sleeve and take a lot of arguments with him and I was completely prepared for that I so I would do like these rehearsals with Bjarne I would ask him all the difficult questions and he would get really angry but he would get angry with me so he was kind of like diffused you know the, he was kind of diffused a little bit once he got asked a question by a proper journalist at the tour there's a lot to, there was a lot for him to do and there was definitely also a lot for me to do with him I wouldn't have said he was a particularly comfortable figure in the media. He he wasn't he didn't exude media training certainly. He he wasn't great with the media either when he won the tour. You could you could sort of sense that he was uncomfortable and and like I said before, it was actually something that people kind of took to because it meant that he was like a, a normal person. But after the scandals and after at least for parts of the media, it became obvious that he'd been part of a pretty integrated doping system. He he. he he put his guard up every time he talked to journalists. He never really knew, because at that, at that point he hadn't really admitted anything, actually to the contrary, so his guard was up all the time. He always sort of thought there would be like a, a question that would be difficult to, to answer, and for that reason he, he, was, he was quite yeah, reluctant to really give anything away. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes, and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com 
for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Unbelievable riding by the leader of Team CSC. I don't think there's any holding him back now, Paul. For Basso, I'm amazed at how fresh he looks. This man never really looked under any pressure at all. Operation Puerto in Spain, the Spanish Civil Guard conducting a series of raids that uncovered uh, blood doping memorabilia and lists a paper trail to cyclists. Operation Puerto was the blood doping scandal which rocked cycling in May, June and July 2006 and led to a number of riders being pulled out of the Tour de France on the eve of the Grand Depart in Strasbourg. Among them, Ivan Basso, the Italian rider who led Bjarne Ries' CSC team. It's a pretty crazy situation because we were at the end of the Giro that Paso was winning by a lot. <clears throat> and then one night in a hotel, I can't remember where the specific hotel, but it was in a mountain somewhere. And then my phone rang. And what I didn't know was that it was, I was part of a live program at Cadena SER. <clears throat> and I didn't speak any Spanish, but they just put me directly on live. So I just uh, called Andrea Peron. Who, who spoke Spanish and I just, hey, could you talk to these guys because I really don't know what they're talking about. And I could tell from, from how uh, the, the look on Andrea Peron's face that those were not easy questions and something was, you know, was about to happen. And then it happened really fast in the days after because it doesn't take much to, for those rumors to start to circulate. And, and also because at the time they, you know, they, they, they already had, if not evidence, but something that was almost as good as a smoking gun. What was your attitude? Were you looking at this as a kind of PR professional, that there was, a, there was going to be some firefighting to do, some damage limitation perhaps, or were you sort of seeking answers from, from Reese and Basso about what was actually going to emerge? What should you brace yourself for? How did it kind of shake down? Both, I would say. I mean, I'd, <clears throat> I'd, I'd been in cycling at that time for four or five years, working professionally for, you know, for, for a very successful team. I wouldn't say I was, you know, I wasn't bored. I had, you know, I definitely enjoyed my life doing that. But it, it, it sounds really stupid when I say, it, but it came at a good time for me because it was extremely challenging. It was a huge piece of news. It, you know, shook the foundations of the team. It, 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 it was a very dark chapter in cycling in general, and you know, work, you know, working with Ivan Basso and and Bjarne obviously meant that we were at the center of the story of sorts, at least initially, even was in a, in a big way. Uh, but it, it, it was as if in the period between the Giro and the Tour, it, it wouldn't, the story definitely didn't die down, but it was, it was as if it had, had lost a little bit of its oomph because all those riders started the Tour. The teams had agreed, I remember at the time, uh, that if there was a specific and sort of like hands-on suspicion to leave riders at home, because it would, you know, for the image of cycling and for, for, for those who actually were there to race, it would take away a lot of relevant media and a lot of coverage. So, so that was already in place. And that was actually the reason why in Strasbourg they were sent home. Because, you know, it's not, it's easy to look back and say, well, you had all the proof in the world, but it's not, that doesn't mean if someone is supposed to be fired, suspended or having an anti-doping infraction, you, you still need hard evidence. We still live in a society where that's the case. But at the same time, everyone, rightfully so, were demanded, demanded answers, you know. And, and you know, if you, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm starting to sound like a meme now, but there's a lot of 
good, I think, good solid rules of thumb in, in media management. And one of them is if you can't communicate facts, you have to communicate process. And that was pretty much what, what we were left to do initially, but then it all exploded in Strasbourg. This is the beautiful city of Strasbourg in France. We're not far away, in fact, from the borders of Germany. It's playing host this year to the start of the 93rd Tour de France. But for the moment, at least, it's not about the cycle race we are talking, but about the fact that just in the last 24 hours, the two favourites to win this race, Ivan Basso of Italy, Jan Ulrich of Germany, both sent home, along with 20 other riders by their teams, under the cloud of drugs. Paul, tell us more about that. Well, Operation Puerto started in Madrid five weeks ago, and in fact, it was all taken out by the Guardia Civil, the Spanish uh, civil guard, and they discovered a laboratory where... Was Ivan Basso, who really was the big favourite to win the Tour de France this year. Bjorn Arise is his manager, and he had to tell him he was no longer riding the tour. And this is what he had to say. He wanted to stay in the race, that's uh, certain, but he had to understand my decision. That's my job. Well, how did you explain that to him? Did you explain that there were suspicions uh, around him? Uh, yeah, basically that's what I told him. And he still claims innocence. A lot of the um, Danish journalists ended up calling it Stressburg. It was, ended up being pretty convenient because our hotel, as you said, was just across from the, from the press room. And the story, when it proper broke that, there was, that they were being sent home, it almost felt like you were in a, in a building that was burning and you saw the firefighters moving towards to, you know, but it was the exact opposite. You know, they, they saw that it was burning and they wanted, it to, they wanted to see the flames. And I, luckily at that point, I really trusted my judgment. So I said to him, you know, we need, we need to face this. And I said, uh, you and I will walk to the media center. It will be hard to avoid answering questions just as we get out, but we're going to go to the media centers and then we're going to take every single question. He said, yes. He said, that's fine. Let's do that. And then I had a feeling that what, what the most imminent questions were. And then as soon as we get out the elevator, and that, but that, that was probably like 500 meters to go to be at the press room. It was just carnage, really. It was a massive scrum. So we walked to the press room and I remember after the third questions, fourth question, that they weren't easy questions, but I think Bjarne did relatively okay. He, he, he asked me, you know, when are we done? I said, until there are no more questions. And he accepted that. At the time, I looked at this in a very black and white way. I mean, the cheats were bad and the non-cheats, if there were any, were not. I mean, I can say this to you now, but I thought you were kind of part of the part of the problem, if you like, because your job was to present the best possible face for the team, for the sponsors. You, you couldn't you couldn't libel your own rider. You couldn't condemn him and you know make him guilty in the eyes of the world's media before there'd been some kind of due process. So I understand that, and I guess even back then I did understand that but it's always interested me whether you knew how much you knew about the situation and whether you knew that you were defending someone who had been cheating or whether you saw it as a my job is for the team my job is to you know uh, present because there will be a there will be a future beyond this some, something it will, maybe there will be a catalyst for change here yeah. I mean it, it took a, uh, we can say now with all the years of hindsight that things did gradually improve it took a while but I wonder what was going through your mind at the time 
first of all, it, it, it was definitely not my job to defend neither Bjarne nor Eveman. My job was to facilitate the interaction the team had with media, help Bjarne and the riders understand what our obligations were, and help gather as much information so that they didn't have to read every single newspaper every day. But I also felt like I had a little bit of an equity in both sides, and I and I, I wouldn't say I had a lot of friends in the media, but I did. I made friends with a lot of journalists, and I, if I at the time had had the feeling that oh yeah, Bjarne is the mastermind behind all of this, I wouldn't have wanted to be a part of it. That would be completely nonsensical because you would you would look like that. Uh, wasn't he the spokesperson for the dictator in Iran that says everything's fine and the bombs were flying? You know, right behind him but I you know I I saw it as a I had a professional obligation to do my job as best as possible balancing that against not completely you know washing out my own integrity if Bjarne had said to me hey yeah all this is true and by the way I'm a massive part of it so help me create a lie that will you know so we can continue as a team you know that even you know, I don't really even if, if Bjarne had been a very integrated part of it which he, he might or might not have been probably was to a certain degree it wouldn't have been instrumentally very smart of him to make that confession towards me because it, it, I, you know, I, didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to be a part of it what did you think of us those of us who were writing fairly damning stuff about Basso and the team and the other riders that were involved I mean the copy kind of wrote itself really but what did you think of the, the journalists the, the people that were causing the scrum looking back I, I understand why there was a lot of anger you know, and a lot of frustration because you sort of like cycling had already lost its innocence, you know, significantly from 98 and, and, and that all these people would cover the sport in the interim years <clears throat> with the hope of, of that, you know, having had changed a lot and maybe same would happen for the people who had thought that Lance Armstrong brought a, you know, breath of fresh air after, you know, and that certainly wasn't the case it turned out after all. I think it comes down to the fact that those the cyclists that covered cycling loved the sport. So they personally felt betrayed because they had quoted riders, sports directors, team owners and and actually thought that they were talking, you know, speaking the truth. How did Bjarne Reese deal with it? I mean, was he well, obviously determined to go on with the tour. The tour did go on. Everybody went on. Um, what was it like? I remember it as being easier than I thought it would be. There was an interest, obviously from the from the ASO, but also from the riders who were still there to race. And you know, there's, there's still riders who are fighting for a contract. There were still riders with ambitions. There were still teams who were competitive. So you know, on top of all that chaos, which is sometimes a bit strange when you think of it, there was a bike race. Landis comes home. His first ever stage win in his fifth Tour de France. He's had three yellow jerseys this week. But he hasn't never dreamt he'd get another one, and now he's made it possible. After years of rumours, Reese finally confessed to using EPO in order to win the 1996 tour in late May 2007. He'd earned a nickname, Mr. 60%, which related to his alleged hematocrit level during that 1996 tour, but he had persistently denied any allegations of doping. But the rumours 
continued to swirl and eventually his hand was forced because his former telecom teammates, including the Dane Brian Holm, but also German riders Rolf Aldag and Eric Zabel, confessed that they had used EPO on the telecom team and it was becoming increasingly untenable for Rees to continue to claim that he had been clean. The tour started in London that year and I remember they made a symbolic gesture. They removed Bjarne Rees' name from the role of honour in the road book. Rees also offered to hand back his yellow jersey. And it's perhaps indicative of Rees' problematic relationship with the Tour de France that he was not invited to be part of the formalities as the Grand Depart approached in Copenhagen this weekend. It was kind of a house of cards that, that fell down starting with the German riders uh, admitting to having doped and even if you didn't know cycling it would be kind of hard to imagine that if these helpers of Bjarne when he won the tour had doped that, that if you think he didn't uh, you'd be kind of naive at this point <clears throat> so I, I was completely prepared for that to happen and, and for it to um, dawn upon Bjarne that he had to basically face the media and talk about it so what I did was, we, I was in Italy at the time and Bjarne was as well. I said, I remember ringing him and I said, Bjarne, I'm going to send out an invitation now for a press conference in Denmark. And when we invited people for that press conference, you, you have to be pretty naive to not guess the context of it. I didn't write it, but, but then at least it gave people some, okay, now he's going to have a press conference. So, I mean, I remember from sending out that invitation, I said, Bjarne, you know, turn off your phone because we're gonna, we, we want to talk in front of everyone on that day and spend as much time as needed. But don't do anything before that. And at the time I was, I had everything prepared and I, I played a little bit of golf that time. So, and I couldn't pick up my phone either. So I remember putting my phone in my golf bag, fully charged. And by the time I finished the first nine, the front nine, it had rang so many times that the battery was almost gone. Den måske største danske sportspræstation nogensinde byggede på en løgn. I fem år var Epo en del af hans hverdag. Det erkendte Bjørne Ries på et velbesøgt pressemøde. Jeg har taget doping. Jeg har taget Epo. Og det var en periode. Det var i den periode en del af min hverdag. And for a little while, the ASO actually left the winner of the 1996 Tour de France blank. I think in the roadbook for that year's tour, there was officially no winner of the 96 Tour. They 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 erased Rees from the role of honour. They reinstated him again, and then subsequently Armstrong's been you know erased. It's a it's a real mess. But I mean, in terms of the reaction in Denmark, my impression is that. The media and perhaps society as well are quite Anglo-Saxon, like we are in in uh, the UK, where heroes fall very hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, the story wasn't that he had doped. At this point, you know, in time, you'd have if you followed sport a little bit and everything, you'd have to be a bit naive. I think the story, in my opinion, was that he lied about it. But they went very, very. They were very, very hard on Bjarne, and they, you know, the, the headlines were all obviously, you know, quite very, very condemning. Not that, that about him lying, but about that he doped. I said to Bjarne, this is really good. It's good that they're condemning you, and you know, it's good that you should. It's also good that you you take full responsibility. But the harder they condemn you, at some point the general public will say that's enough already. 
they even tried to chase his, and his, his sons at the time. They were very young, you know, they were barely teenagers. Who, have, you know, when, I remember in the, in the back room at the press conference, who we were hugging him and said that they loved him and they were happy that he'd, that he'd like, basically there must have been a storm from his heart that he, you know, that he didn't have to sort of worry about having those questions anymore. And, and I, that was quite heartwarming. And when, when they started to chase his kids and his wife and all that, the general public, I think a lot of them were just like, that's enough. Stop, you know, stop being hysterical about that one guy when it was a fairly integrated system in professional cycling at the time. If you say that Bjarne didn't win the tour, you're, you're quoting history wrong. You can't rewrite history. It did happen. People saw it with their own eyes. What you, what you can change is retrospectively your perspective of what went into that win and how it was facilitated. But if you say that Bjarne didn't win the tour, you can erase it in Wikipedia or in the, in the books and the handles of ASO. But, but you're, you're, you're re trying to rewrite history if you say that you didn't, in, in my opinion, and I think in a lot of Danes' opinion. How far did Danish cycling's reputation fall? Did people, did the popularity decline steeply? And how did the rehabilitation come about? I think it, it, it definitely declined because it, it took a while before there were really good Danish riders again. There'd be a stage when here and there, you know, Nicky Sorensen won a stage, and the, but there wasn't any, like, there wasn't, we were very, very, very far away from having, until recently, a, a Danish GC potential. We were very far from having a potential Danish Classic winner. So we were really in a slump in terms of the talent that was there. You know, there were good domestiques on other teams and respected riders, but no stars, no major winners. So I think it, 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 it definitely went through a, a phase of people losing a little bit of interest because I, I know that also from working in Danish TV as a commentator, etc., that the, the viewing figures are way, way higher if there's a Danish guy doing well. I'm sure it's the same in other countries. And it wasn't until the, the, the newer generation that came on quite a while later that Denmark came into a position of almost being one of the strongest nations in the world. And that has coincided with a huge interest and a huge following and, and Danish, Denmark is a cycling nation also in terms of how we transport ourselves around, even in the big cities. So it, it, it's this year in Copenhagen is, is probably is, is the, is a temporary peak of how, how interested people are, how much they love it and how, how big a following it, it would probably have. Undoubtedly, Bjarne Ries' reputation and his Tour de France victory were tainted in the eyes of the Danish public, and the sport's reputation was tarnished too. But unbelievably, Danish cycling's reputation was to get worse before it got better, and that's where we'll pick up the story in part two. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney.